the Ethiopian eunuch who is unnamed. We actually know a lot about him. He's a court official to Queen Candace, queen of the Ethiopians. This is another echo of the promise that is made in the Old Testament and by the prophets that kings and queens from all around the world would gather in Jerusalem. And this certainly happened in the reign of Solomon. The queen of Sheba comes to hear his great wisdom. And so the seed of God's work is planted in Ethiopia, far away from Jerusalem by land travel or sea travel. But um, there is something happening there that draws this Ethiopian eunuch to Jerusalem for the festivities of Passover, Pentecost. And so he's been part of this. He is most likely a, a proselyte, someone who is a God-fearer, someone who is um, worshiping the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Um, as far as we know, he can read Hebrew or a translation of Hebrew. It's hard to say what he's reading, what language he's reading the scroll of Isaiah in. But he's reading Isaiah. He's, he's studying the Bible to try to find out some answers about who Jesus is, who Isaiah is, and who he is. Eunuchs were quite common in the world until maybe the last hundred years. Um, so we're talking not that recent, quite recent history a number of places around the world would have employed men who were eunuchs in their diplomatic ranks and other courtly functions, especially the places where they kept uh, multiple wives in harems. Um, eunuchs were always a, a big part of that as they were not able to pass down uh, their... They could not father children. And so they seemed safer to guard and manage the affairs of state. So they can never be elected to public office or succeed or take over the throne. Although eunuchs had a lot of influence throughout human history. We certainly can see that in the stories in Game of Thrones with a very influential eunuch named Varys. That's pretty accurate. Um, all throughout church history and, and through really ancient history, we see eunuchs constantly being um, mentioned and talked about and discussed as, for their influence, their power, and their role in society. Probably the most famous eunuch in the Bible is Daniel. Um, he is um, most likely in this group of people um, and we uh, see his influence in the kingdoms of Babylonia and Persia pretty vividly in the Bible. Um, the thing about eunuchs is that they are, they are almost, per, almost 100% of the time, uh, they start their lives as victims of child abuse. Um, the trauma of the quote-unquote surgery of becoming a eunuch um, we can't really uh, fathom the, the depth of that pain and suffering and um, 
trauma of that experience. Um, even though there are examples in history of people sort of getting the surgery so they could hold a government job, there are examples of that in history. Most of the eunuchs that we know were bought as enslaved children and were uh, butchered that way and then sold for a higher price as eunuchs. Um, so we imagine that this man is, has had that experience in his life. So he is, um, he is a student of the scroll of Isaiah, and he's riding in this chariot. So he's, he's doing well for himself, as many eunuchs did. Um, that is why there are examples in history of eunuchs who are men who get the surgery so they can serve in that way to advance their career. Strange as it is, um, he has achieved a lot of success. He works for Queen Candace. And Ethiopia is mentioned a number of times in scripture and, and lots in ancient history as being a place of great prosperity. Ethiopia trades with India and has for forever. Um, and also all the mineral resources and um, other resources from Central Africa are also um, on the other side of Ethiopia. So it is a country that has always benefited from its location it's always been pretty prosperous, even today, um, although they've had certainly their struggles of civil war and, and many years ago, famine and some other major uh, troubles. They, um, they still have, a, in some ways, a, a, a greater standard of living than, than many other surrounding areas. And so it is in this time, this Ethiopian eunuch is riding in his chariot and he's reading from the prophet Isaiah. He's going home. Um, he is a treasurer. He's an accountant. He's in charge of this entire treasury. Um, and there in the chariot, the spirit tells Philip, who is a deacon, an evangelist, the spirit tells Philip to uh, jump in the chariot with him. We see, um, we see this, um, this enthusiasm of the spirit to connect people, especially people who are exploring the claims of Jesus. I think this is true today. I think that uh, the way church plants grow and the way churches grow is they try to connect with people who are exploring the scriptures and the things of God. Um, I don't know what else other reason to join a church if you weren't somewhat interested in the scroll of Isaiah or other scriptural topics. Um, there's lots of reasons people join churches, but I think people are studying these things, thinking about these things. You turn on any kind of TV channel today and you'll see multiple documentaries about hidden secrets of the Bible. And um, certainly the internet is full of people talking about scripture, the Bible, and people are interested in this stuff. Although they live their lives in a secular society that, you know, you really can't talk about a lot of this stuff at work generally, uh, maybe not around your relatives, the church should be a place for exploration of the Bible. And that's exactly what happens in this chariot. A little Bible study breaks out. Um, he's reading from the prophet Isaiah, this literate scholar, um, this eunuch, is um, poring over this 
the scroll of the prophet Isaiah. Um, and Philip asked him, do you understand what you're reading? And of course, the softball is lobbed to Philip. How can I unless someone guides me? And he invites Philip into the chariot to sit next to him. This is a pretty big chariot. This is not your like Ben-Hur chariot with like one guy in the, in the reins. This is like probably what we would call a war wagon or something with at least three seats in it. There's somebody driving the chariot. There's a bench for two people to sit on and, and look at the same scroll together. It's a pretty big, pretty big vehicle. He gets in and, uh, The scripture they were reading is from the scroll of Isaiah. Like a sheep, he was led to the slaughter, like a lamb silent before his shearer, so he doesn't open his mouth. In his humiliation, justice was denied him. Who can describe his generation? His life is taken away from the earth. This this text from Isaiah is a hard one to understand. Who is... Isaiah talking about. And here we see the the standard way that the apostolic preaching happened, that they would look at the scroll of Isaiah, they would look at Jeremiah, they would look at the prophet Joel, they would look at Amos, and they would say, who is the prophet talking about? Is the prophet talking about himself? Possibly. That is the question of the Ethiopian eunuch. Whom does he talk about? himself or someone else. And so um, this is the ultimate question of Bible study, is who is being talked about? A reading from the Acts of the Apostles. An angel of the Lord said to Philip, get up and go toward the south to the road that goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. This is a wilderness road. So he got up and went. Now there was an Ethiopian eunuch, a court official of Candace, queen of the Ethiopians, in charge of her entire treasury. He had come to Jerusalem to worship and was returning home. Seated in his chariot, he was reading the prophet Isaiah. Then the spirit said to Philip, go over to this chariot and join it. So Philip ran up to it and heard him reading the prophet Isaiah. He said, do you understand what you're reading? He replied, How can I unless someone guides me? And he invited Philip to get in and sit beside him. Now the passage of the scripture that he was reading was this. Like a sheep, he was led to the slaughter. And like a lamb silent before its shearers, so he does not open his mouth. In his humiliation, justice was denied him. Who can describe his generation? For his life is taken away from the earth. The eunuch asked Philip, About whom, may I ask you, does the prophet say this, about himself or about someone else? Then Philip began to speak, and starting with this scripture, he proclaimed to him the good news about Jesus. As they were going along the road, they came to some water, and the eunuch said, Look, here is water. What is to prevent me from being baptized? He commanded the chariot to stop. And both of them, Philip and the eunuch, went down into the water, and Philip baptized him. When they came up out of the water, the Spirit of the Lord snatched Philip away. The eunuch saw him no more and went on his way rejoicing. But Philip found himself at Azotus, and as he was passing through the region, 
he proclaimed the good news to all the towns until he came to Caesarea. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. All right. Um, And so this exploration of Isaiah, Isaiah is talking about himself, generally, in Isaiah. And then he's talking about somebody else. Um, The suffering servant. This would have been new information for Second Temple Judaism, as we know it today. The Second Temple that is there in Jerusalem certainly had theological claims, beliefs, and the Jews of Jesus' day. Um, those, not just the ethnic identity of Jewish people, but the religious identity of Jewish people centered around the temple, um, predominantly saw the Messiah as someone who would be very successful, who would, like some of the other liberators of God's people, Judas Maccabeus, um, Gideon, and other liberators like Moses even, um, the Messiah, the promised one, the anointed one, would be very successful and triumph over his enemies. And yet this scroll from Isaiah about the suffering servant in Isaiah 53, um, speaks of the tortures of the servant of God, of the Messiah, that he is crushed, that he is hurt, he is wounded, bruised, beaten, um, humiliated. And this, he is slaughtered like a sheep, and he doesn't say a word. And the Ethiopian eunuch knows that something bigger is happening here. And Philip shows him what he believes, and that is that this, the identity of this person, the suffering servant, is Jesus. He, like a lamb, was taken before Pontius Pilate, and he didn't even answer most of the questions. He was silent like a lamb before his shearers. Um, he is sacrificed on Passover as the Paschal Passover lamb. Um, and so this explanation that Philip gives Uh, immediately the Ethiopian eunuch um, understands what is happening. And he's probably seen the baptisms in Jerusalem that have been happening. So he immediately um, asks this question, what is preventing me from being baptized? Here we see the intelligence of the Ethiopian eunuch. He is uh, the master of the uh, polite demand Um, We might call it different things today. Um, I think Southern women are famous for this kind of uh, polite demand, uh, as as has been uh, documented fairly frequently. But this is someone who has very little personal power. Um, He is a eunuch, so men are going to treat him differently. Uh, Many men are going to treat him differently. People in power are going to treat him differently. So everything he's had to earn in his life has had to be earned through this kind of soft power, this um, diplomatic uh, intelligence that gets what he wants in a way that doesn't um, cause anyone to see him as a threat. You can see that in his question. He says, uh, what hinders me? He look, here's a lot of water. What is to prevent me from being baptized? It's a brilliant and beautiful diplomatic thing. He doesn't demand baptism of of Philip. 
hey, baptize me. We're right here by the water. As some of the Roman soldiers who convert to Christianity are very much like they march into Peter and they say, I'm here to be baptized. Um, The Ethiopian eunuch doesn't do that. Here we see how the spirit moves in different groups of people, especially those who, although they are in a position of immense influence, um, ultimately don't have the same kind of um, personal command authority that um, some of the other characters in the Bible seem to have. So this um, indirect question is immediately answered by Philip. It doesn't even say Philip um, says anything. The Ethiopian eunuch, he's the one that commands the chariot to stop. They stop the chariot, they get down the water, and he's baptized. Not a word is spoken by Philip. Now, I imagine he said the baptismal formula, I baptize you in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, that Jesus told his disciples to use, but the text does not record it. The last word spoken is by the Ethiopian eunuch. We can see how the Spirit is empowering people without power to have it in the Spirit. Uh, This Holy Spirit is directing this whole production and baptism. And then suddenly, when mission is accomplished, Philip is snatched away and the eunuch sees him no more. But he rejoices. And there Philip goes on a missionary journey. This um, story of the Ethiopian eunuch has been taken up by many commentators on this text that are um, engaging in reading the Bible through a queer lens. The Ethiopian eunuch is often held up as someone who does not fit the normal binaries of male and female, does not fit into the narrow, rigid um, definition of what it is to be a man in any society, including ours. And yet the spirit is poured out on him and he understands it and makes a claim for himself. He does not need uh, any other authority figure to validate his understanding of who Jesus is. He is the one that um, demands the baptism. He is the one that stops the chariot. And the last word spoken in the story is by him. And this is what the spirit does. And we can see this in the current church that we serve in, that uh, queer people, LGBTQ people have said, we are here and we want to be part of what God is doing in the world. We want to be baptized. We want to be uh, part of the sacramental dispensation of God's grace. We want to be married. We want to be ordained. Um, And at first they had to do it much like the Ethiopian eunuch. Oh, look, here's water. What's preventing me from being baptized? When women were ordained in our church in the 1970s for the first time in 80s, um, there were many objections from within our church who said, that's not right. Uh, My bishop, uh, who's now retired, who received me here into this diocese, Bishop Dina Harrison, um, shared once that She attended an ordination for a a woman that she knew that had discipled her and brought her into the Episcopal Church. She had been a neighbor that had started a Bible study, and she was a school teacher, director of a school, and um, started going to church at the Episcopal Church. And this uh, woman that had mentored her, um, she went to her ordination. And there in the cathedral, 
Um, a priest with his whole little congregation came down the aisle, a man came down the aisle and objected when it says, if anyone knows any reason this person shouldn't be ordained, speak now, forever hold your peace. He objected with his whole congregation and the bishop, uh, you know, looked at him after he was finished his little speech and said, well, she meets all the requirements for ordination, so we're going to proceed with the liturgy. And that priest and his entourage left the building. And Bishop Harrison, as, as a, a non-ordained person who was thinking about ordination at that time, was really, um, really shocked by that. And it disturbed her that that could sort of happen in our Episcopal Church, which she saw as very open to women in leadership at that time. And so um, this is the same principle um, what is hindering these people from being ordained? Nothing. Um, so let's 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 get on with it. Um, I think that is the right attitude for um, the ordination of women, the ordination of LGBTQ people in our church. Um, certainly, nothing in Scripture is preventing that, and nothing in church tradition. Although some have used Scripture and used church tradition to posit some kind of exclusion of people. We know that there are prophecies about eunuchs in the Old Testament. I think today as uh, debates around uh, masculinity and femininity rage, um, we see what does it mean to be a man? We see people saying things like, um, you know, you really have no stake in the future unless you have children. Um, childless people should have less rights. Um, or that pressure to have children, uh, no matter your life circumstances or anything like that. And the promises made to eunuchs in the book of Isaiah are very clear. To the eunuchs, I say, you'll have many children. You'll have so many children, you don't, won't know what to do with them, he says. Um, because in, in the spirit, the main form of fulfilling the command to be fruitful and multiply is in the Great Commission that we are passed down our spiritual DNA to the next generation. And that is the important act of procreation that is happening in the church today. Of course, it's wonderful to have children and to raise them in the nurture and love of the Lord. That's a great thing. And we'll always be celebrating that and praying for that and wishing each other the best in that as it is a perilous journey. But we want to make it clear that to be a Christian doesn't mean you have to have kids. doesn't mean you have to follow uh, whatever path was set for you by your parents or by people in your community. Ultimately, in the community of Christ, the eunuchs are standing in the waters of baptism with everybody else. And there's nothing um, that can take that away from them. The Spirit is flowing to people that... The rest of the, the Roman world and the rest of our world um, may not recognize as having the kind of ability and power, but God's spirit always has the last word. And that spirit often speaks in the voice of an Ethiopian eunuch. Amen. Today, the church remembers Eva Lee Matthews, or Eva Lee Matthews, Eva Lee Matthews. Um, Eva Lee Matthews was born on February 9, 1862 in Glendale, Ohio. 
She grew up as an active member of the Episcopal Church and felt a call to service in the church from a young age. While she was working at Bethany Mission House, an Episcopal charitable organization designed to help the less fortunate residents of Cincinnati, Ohio, she and her co-worker, Beatrice Henderson, discerned a call to create a new Episcopal religious order. The purpose of this order was to assist Cincinnati's poor, especially children. Eva became the community's first superior, taking the name Mother Eva Mary. On August 6, 1898, Episcopal Church officials formally recognized Matthews and Henderson's order, naming the group the Community of the Transfiguration. The Community of the Transfiguration remained in Cincinnati for only a short time. They relocated to Glendale, Matthews' childhood home. The order grew slowly. But by the 1920s, the community of the Transfiguration had members engaged in ministries in Painesville, Ohio, Cleveland, Woodlawn, Hawaii, and even China. Doesn't say where in China, just China. Big place. But Matthew served as leader of the community until her death in July of 1928. The community she founded continues to serve the church through a variety of ministries in Ohio, California, and the Dominican Republic. Um, a lot of people, when they join the Episcopal Church, don't know that we have monks and nuns. Um, and as Melanie shared on Sunday, um, she was at one time a nun in the Episcopal Church, and I'm thankful for her service there. We also have um, a number of Episcopal monks and nuns that sometimes join us for diocesan events in the Diocese of Texas, although... I don't believe we have any monks or nuns resident in the Diocese of Texas now. The, the Anglican or Episcopal Church religious orders are characterized by poverty, chastity, and obedience. Poverty, that they cannot own any possessions. Um, chastity, that they vow to be celibate. And obedience, and that they take direction from the head of the religious order, and often have vows of stability as well, that they must live at the um, place appointed for them to live. So um, there are lots of other ways to serve God in the church, but these um, monks and nuns are generally considered our elite athletes in the spiritual life. And, um, and that discernment takes years for them to discern that that's for them. Um, I had a seminary colleague who spent a year at one of our Anglican monasteries and discerned that that was not for him. But he, maybe it was two years that he was there. So there's lots of discernment that goes on on whether that's for you or not. But um, thankful for these and for this early adopter of this. As we know, Henry VIII in the English Reformation despoiled the monasteries and convents of England. He confiscated their property and Monks and nuns were no longer allowed to, to work and be monks and nuns in England. Um, eventually, by the 1800s, you have religious orders coming back into the Anglican world, and we are thankful for that. One such monk um, named Dom Gregory Dix started the liturgical movement. He was a Church of England or Anglican monk who really brought back into popularity and use the church service that we have every Sunday. It was his influence 
and writing that changed the Episcopal Church and Anglican Church from what they were doing before that to what we do now. So we are always um, greatly influenced by monks and nuns in our church, even though they're very small in number. They do have a great um, influence over the life of our church. O God, whose blessed Son became poor, that through his poverty we might be rich, deliver us from an inordinate love of this world, that inspired by the devotion of your servant, Eva Lee Matthews, we may serve you with singleness of heart and attain to the riches of that age to come. Through the same Jesus Christ, our Lord, who lives and reigns with you in the unity of the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen. When I was an army chaplain, my soldiers asked me all kinds of questions about God, life, relationships, the Bible, and answered them as best I could. They also called me Padre. Welcome to the Dear Padre podcast. I'm glad you're here.